Thank you so much, Megan. And hello, everyone. Welcome again. Wherever it is that you are right now, so grateful for the opportunity to be in worship with you in these moments together. A special welcome to those of you from Bethany, West Seattle, our location that's worshiping with us here at Green Lake today. Grateful to have you with us as well. My name is Nathan Nelson, and I oversee the Ministry of Mission and Outreach here at the church. And I've had various titles throughout my time here at Bethany uh, over the last several years. But uh, just last Sunday, I was commissioned by all of you as a pastor. And so I am officially the pastor of Mission and Outreach. And so thank you all so much for the gift that this last week was uh, just such a beautiful Sunday and a landmark moment in my life and certainly in my wife, Macy, and I's lives together. So thank you so much. Um, This morning, we are getting ready to uh, look into this text from Acts in continuation of our series on the book of Acts. However, we're making a shift now from what we were calling Acts, the shape of things, to Acts, the new shape of church. And so we really want to be um, paying special attention to the the shape in which Christ desires uh, to mold us into as a body, as as a congregation, as a church in this incredibly unique season in which we find ourselves. And as we've said all throughout the pandemic, and especially as heightened awareness of racial injustice issues have been bubbling to the surface, it's so incredibly important for us to be listening and hearing the voice of the Spirit and making ourselves available to take this new shape as a body together uh, uh, in response to what God is doing in our midst. And so it's towards that and then I invite you to pray with us now and then we'll hop into the scriptures together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift that it is to be your children. Lord, thank you for the invitation when we follow you, not simply to do so, as ourselves, as individuals, Lord, but as part of a family. Thank you, Father, that uh, like any family, we experience all kinds of uh, hardship and we're led astray. And yet, God, you are there as the good shepherd to bring us back into your fold and, and, and evermore embody your likeness in the world. And so, Lord, we pray that your scriptures would uh, reveal to us both the beauty of what it is to be a part of your body in these moments together Give us a vision for how much better that can, that can be. And also, Lord, convict us of those areas that are in uh, disalignment with the, Lord, the ways in which uh, you would have us be your people. So God, we desire to embody you for the purposes of bringing your kingdom just a little bit closer here on earth that is it, it is in heaven. And so it's towards that and that we commit ourselves to you now. Amen. Well, believe it or not, for 18 weeks... Now, we have been gathering online for worship as a church, 18 weeks. And if our exclusively online worship experience or just church experience were an infant in the womb, we would be like partway through our second trimester right now. So if it feels a little um, like it could use further growth, the good news is we're still in the womb, folks. We're getting better at this. Uh, Much of our normal programming for this time of year has been suspended. Staff and lay leaders are sort of holding up Governor Inslee's uh, predictions and uh, phases and the timelines there and the structures and the systems that we have in place as a church. And we're recognizing that those two are not going to line up as uh, we imagined as soon as we were hoping. And so certainly, for this season at least, returning to, quote, normal is not going to be an option for us. 
So we're investing our time and our energy into new options for worship and community building together. For example, in backyards, in parks, uh, various ways of meeting in more relational ways online, the list goes on. But things are changing and so must the church change. And even before the pandemic, we knew that the church was in a process of taking on new shape. Research being done by folks, some of whom are even part of our community here at Bethany, uh, has been revealing that Seattle is home to more churches per capita than other major cities across the country, and yet church attendance is lower across the board as people begin to seek a sense of community in places elsewhere than the church. For example, CrossFit gyms or yoga studios, neighborhood groups, or co-ops. And I can attest to this being true in my own life. My wife and I recently, in the last couple of years, have gotten super involved in this crazy thing called flying trapeze. And I can genuinely tell you, I have found an amazing sense of community in the circus here in Seattle. These are good things. But in addition to this, in recent months, ethno-racial segre- the ethno-racial segregated nature of the church and our local communities has risen in our social concept- conscience raising anew important questions about the dissonance between the state of the church today and God's desired intent for the full breadth of his diverse kingdom. And finally, we're in an increasingly globalized world with more people and information and ideas moving around than ever before. Some of which is good and others of which is the consequence of brokenness in our world. We have more than a billion people displaced from their homes because of conflict the largest number of people since World War II. So the world around us is changing, and so must the church. And it's within this present context that we're going to enter the text for today and in the weeks to come, asking the question of God and ourselves, what shape is the church called to take now? And as it relates to our text from Acts 6, 1 to 7, that we heard Megan read, Specifically, the question for us today is, what role am I to play in it? You and I, together. So as we consider these all-important questions, I'd like to present three guiding principles from the text that I believe will aid us in our discernment. The first of which is that we're called to be ministers of a holistic gospel for all people, all areas of life, in word and in deed. Now, to help appreciate the significance of what's happening in the story, I'd like to sort of paint a picture for you of the church at the time. And what is first called, quote, the church in Acts consisted initially of just this small minority of Jewish countercultural rebels, if you will, in Jerusalem who'd come to follow this guy, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. And of course, it was their Jewish peers and religious leaders at the time who had just crucified this very person to whom these folks now pledge their allegiance. And so as we enter the scene in in Acts chapter 6, this once small, largely homogenous group had begun to grow. And with that growth came greater diversity, socially, ethno-racially, And this God-given diversity presented certain challenges, like I would argue any introduction of diversity does, as people uh, who are different from one another seek to live out the values of the kingdom. They may not think like one another, look like one another, sound like one another, or worship like one another. And so you see, the church had begun to comprise people largely from two distinct groups within the Jewish heritage. 
the first diaspora Jews or Hellenistic uh, Jews or those that were the descendants of exiled people in the lands outside of Jerusalem. And then under the Roman Empire, some of these people who had been exiled had begun returning to Jerusalem or the traditional homeland of the Jewish people. And they likely had a rich sense of Jewish culture and religious devotion, which in part motivated their return to begin with. However, they also had adapted some Greek customs and Greek language from their time in exile. So the second group, what we call Hebraic Jews, were born and raised in Jerusalem and spoke primarily Aramaic. So we have language and cultural differences, significant ones, from these two groups. And what transpires here is the first conflict between these groups in the church that we see in scripture. And if you're like me, as I was reading this, I was shocked that there was conflict in the church. Like crazy, right? The first group, Hellenistic Jews, descendants of the diaspora, say to the original 12 apostles who were the formal leaders of the church in that time, they said, hey, This benevolent system, or if you were to put it in contemporary terms, the food bank or the community meal ministry, it's not serving our widows. This isn't right. And they recalled the Torah law of the Old Testament that reminding the apostles that God commands us to care for the stranger or the immigrant like them and for the widow, Deuteronomy 24. And it's likely that this conflict was not an isolated issue. Rather, it was probably evidence of further widespread friction between the two groups. So for the early church in Acts 6, the equitable, just treatment of people from all backgrounds, including the minority and the marginalized among them, was a blind spot. And we're seeing similar blind spots in the church today, are we not? Sunday morning remains one of the most racially segregated times of the week. Our friends and partners at Holly Park Community Church here in South Seattle can attest to this, that like so many other historically black and minority churches in the city, they're receiving continued pressure to sell their building, a place that roots them in a sense of their cultural heritage and and, and where they are, where they've come from, from outside developers who are continually gentrifying what was historically a black or minority neighborhood in the city. And with all that's been happening in recent months, Uh, I've been reflecting more upon my own encounters with racism. And uh, one specific instance came to mind. It was, uh, I was trying to think of like, what is the first issue of racism or personal encounter with racism that I experienced as a young person? And my privilege is going to be on the table for you all to see here. And that the first experience I could recall was when I was 10 years old which I know for many is not the case. And so as a 10-year-old, I was on the playground. It was recess. And uh, I had sort of risen in the ranks to like um, playground basketball king, if you will. And so I had bestowed upon me the incredible honor of being team captain, where I would get to decide who was going to be on one team and who was going to be on another team. And so we're going back and forth, picking teams, picking teams. And then when we had five on each side, there was one outlier. And this outlier happened to be a kid named Mario, who was one of very few uh, Latino folks in our grade at the time. And I remember uh, having chosen the teams based on what seemed like the best players or who fit. 
And then I looked at Mario and I remember thinking to myself, you don't look like the rest of us. You especially don't look like the uh, people that I typically see playing basketball on TV. So it just makes sense. You know, you go take a seat on the side while, while we do our thing. And I even told him, Mario, there's not a place for you. You know, try again later. And of course, in the moment, I wasn't seeking to be overtly racist necessarily, though I certainly was regurgitating racial stereotypes that I had digested over the course of my early lifetime. He was different. He didn't fit. And I'll never forget the sight of Mario standing there on the side of the court midway through the game, weeping, his head down, and a teacher there comforting him. And it dawned on me just a little bit at that early age of 10 that my prejudice had caused some pain. And friends, we're all blind to injustices and inequities of all kinds, are we not? We may say as a church that black lives matter and we stand for racial reconciliation and justice, but make no mistake that as we take steps towards creating a welcoming environment for people of all backgrounds, and seek to right the wrongs of injustice, that conflict and challenges will come. So like Richard talked about last week, if we begin to weigh the pros and the cons, or if we were to do a cost and benefit analysis of pursuing genuine racial justice and equity, in our human flesh, we would certainly and certainly have grown weary. Recoil back to maintaining the status quo that promises us greater comfort. But what we see modeled in this text from Acts is that the call is not to remain homogenous or maintain some surface level facade of unity, but to engage and to intentionally welcome diversity, responding to conflicts compassionately in a way that leads to further growth and genuine unity in our diversity. So whether it's language or cultural differences or political views or religious practice or something as simple as the sports team that you follow and root for, always when there is difference, there will be conflict. And what I want to tell you very clearly today is that the revelation or the realization of that conflict is not in itself a bad thing. It's how we deal with it that will dictate our ability to embody kingdom values of Jesus or not. And this is what we see modeled in the apostles' response, which brings us to our second point for today, empowering ownership and leadership among the body. When presented with this inequity in the body, the apostles gather what the text calls disciples from among the church, which interestingly, uh, to this very point I'm going to expand upon further, is the first time this language of disciples is applied to people outside of those original 12 apostles. Okay? And they say this, picking up in verse 2, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give attention, our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. 
Now, I have to tell you, before I knew I would be preaching on this text, I was reading through Acts sort of alongside our sermon series. And in my own time, I came to this text and I read that last passage once and it was like hard stop for me. I couldn't possibly have heard that right. And I read it again and I read it again and I read it again. And I remember in my little journal making a note like, I don't, this doesn't sit well with me. It's another one of those tough texts. And then I'm asked to preach on this very passage, of course, which to me is nothing less than God's humor. And what I can tell you is that as we look deeper into the text, I think there's an even more profound truth for us, but we do have to look deeper because at first glance, the apostles' reaction seems incredibly pejorative, right? Almost as if to say the, quote, ministry of the word is superior to this petty task of, quote, waiting on tables. It's like they dismiss it and hand it off to other people to worry about so they can keep on preaching. Sounds like a great pastor, right? Now, as a missions pastor, this is interpretation is hugely problematic for me. And so well, I knew when I started looking at this text that I was gonna need to go just a little bit deeper and try to understand better what's going on here. And what I think awaits us is the reality that in fact, what the apostles do in their response is identical to the very missional theology that we seek to embody as a church. And so you see the first area of, at first when this area of need and injustice is presented to the apostles, they immediately respond, gathering the congregation and selecting lay leaders congregants from among them to care for the neglected. Importantly, they acknowledge that in mobilizing leaders to meet the physical needs of the vulnerable, it would require, quote, people full of the spirit and wisdom. So you see, the material and the spiritual needs of the people are interconnected. A material need elicits both a material or a physical and a spiritual response, a solution the church leadership both acknowledges and then commissions people, equipping them to engage the needs of the people in a more holistic way. Now, about a year and a half ago, our partners at the Aurora Commons, uh, longstanding partners of ours here at the church, uh, they came to us and they uh, presented us with a very similar situation, I would say. They expressed that they didn't have the capacity to serve the needs of all of those experiencing homelessness here on Aurora, just a block from our church. They thanked us for much of the support that we'd provided throughout the years and then graciously suggested that we as a church could do a little bit more for the community. So over the years, we've sought to collaborate with other local churches and with the commons and with varying degrees of success. Some good things have happened, but in recent years, a lot of that sort of collaborative nature of other local churches with Bethany and the commons working together had sort of begun to wane. And so uh, as we uh, thought more about this and thought more about the way in which the commons was expressing just this outstanding need that as much as they've been doing good work for so many years, wasn't getting any better there was the reality that perhaps we as a church could do something more. And maybe we as a church with other local churches could do more together. And so myself and uh, one lay leader, Melissa Gossians, and specifically, and then some others as well, we began this process of looking inward 
and considering what have we done well and where have we failed. And then we went and we began to have a series of conversations with pastors from other local churches here on Aurora. And together, over the course of several months, we had these one-on-one conversations that were super reconciliatory in nature, um, acknowledging some shortcomings of the past, things that had been done um, that uh, didn't uh, jive well with the others, so to speak, and um, also just sort of landed on this shared desire that we might do ministry together. And so uh, what came about was this desire to gather all of the churches in the same setting uh, and, and see what kind of vision we could spark together. And so it, it happened to be the same week as the stay home, stay safe order was instituted here in Seattle. And so our first meeting as local churches happened in the context of Zoom, which at the time was super cutting edge and even more clunky than it is now. And now it's just old hat for all of us. Uh, but in this Zoom meeting, and I have a picture of it in the gallery view of all of us different church leaders, because it was such a momentous occasion. What happened was we came together and we all said, uh, yes. We need to be about caring for the vulnerable together. And not only do we need to be, but we're called to be. And so we united under the same banner, if you will, of the North Aurora Church Empowerment Zone. And together with the Commons, since the pandemic started, we have been able to do all kinds of really, really amazing things. And so many of you have been a part of those things. Um, for example, we've raised thousands of dollars to get to meet immediate needs of folks that needed the resources and the, uh, the capability to shelter in place and prevent the spread amongst the community experiencing homelessness. Uh, we've turned our community life center, the building just over to the north of us, um, into a fulfillment center of sorts where we're collecting large-scale donations, storing items, and redistributing them to folks as it's needed. And just recently, we had a situation uh, in which the common staff came back to us and they said, all of this has been so great, but the truth is that our staff has taken on cooking meals, which is normally something we have our guests do for themselves. Uh, but with the pandemic and, and, and PPE requirements and that sort of thing, we need, to, we need to do it ourselves. And so the staff had begun cooking instead of doing the casework, one-on-one important ministry that happens in that way. And so they said, is there any way that you all as churches could help us with some of this cooking so it would free up our staff. And of course, my mind, I was thinking, yeah, that would be great. And then I started preparing this message and I thought, yeah, that would be really great. We need to do that. Because in a sense, what the Aurora Common staff was saying to us was we need to be about serving the word, if you will, or doing the in-person relational ministry stuff that only they are equipped and trained to do. And they were asking if we would be so kind as to wait on tables or serve the food to then together better meet the holistic needs of our unhoused neighbors. I know what you're thinking. No way. That illustration is way too spot on. No, that's real. And so starting on Monday, we're going to start helping cooking these meals uh, here in our commercial kitchen. And there's a second point here regarding the apostles' response. If we look closely, we see that the seven that they appoint are all Greek names, which likely implies that a majority, if not all of them, were from among the Hellenistic group, that first group, experiencing the the group that was experiencing the neglect. And so again, at first glance, this might seem dismissive, like the apostles were pawning off caring for these people onto them. But what I think that we see when we look a little bit closer 
is again the exact model of equipping and empowering local ownership and lay leadership to meet the needs of the people that we seek to do as a church as well. So from a Western North American mindset, if you will, presenting, uh, whenever we're presented with a need for, you know, whatever situation of poverty is in in a given part of the world, whatever, or, or in our own city, often we take it upon ourselves thinking, oh, I need to fix that. And being involved in missions for so many years, I can tell you not only has that been my temptation, but I see it among the people that I serve with all of the time. And we try to do for people what God has always been calling us to do with them. And so following uh, the commissioning of these folks, there's an incredible impact. And I think that if we were to be humble enough to acknowledge that we as, whether it's a church at Bethany or we as uh, North Americans, as we with whatever your skin complexion is, whatever it is that you think qualifies you to have the right answer or the best solution, if we were humble enough to set that aside and acknowledge for a minute that perhaps the people in need know for themselves what it is that they need, They just need the resources to be able to make it happen. Maybe this kind of impact would happen evermore. So it says, following the commission of these seven folks, lay leaders, deacons, outreach ministers, if you will, we read in verse seven, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Next week, you're going to be hearing more about our partnership with World Relief in Rwanda. And this partnership, uh, the work that World Relief is doing is all about this notion of equipping local people to be the solutions to poverty in their context. And the secret sauce to what they do is creating unity among the local church so that churches together can increase their labor force and have a greater impact upon the well-being of people in their own communities. And as I was telling you the story of the North Aurora Church Empowerment Zone, what I didn't tell you is that this vision was actually inspired by our Rwandese brothers and sisters. Just a year ago, year and a half ago or so, Moses Ndahiro, a man I've been privileged to share the pulpit with in the past here at Bethany, uh, came and he said, Nathan, as you're preparing my itinerary, I would love it if we could just build in an opportunity to meet with some of your local partners. I would love to understand the context of poverty that are happening in Seattle. We're so immersed in it in Rwanda, but I want to know what's happening in Seattle. And so I, I arranged a meeting with the Aurora Commons and Moses and Elizabeth Dahl, director of the Commons, and then some other folks, we all met together. And what transpired thereafter was one of the most beautiful conversations that I've ever been privileged to witness between Elizabeth and Moses, the two of them serving some of the most vulnerable people in each of their respective contexts, now talking together. And what, what, what was born out of that was not a sense of, oh my gosh, if the government would just do more, or oh my gosh, if you know, people could just get it right and donate money, we could take care of the problem. No, what came out of that was a very clear vision and passion that the local church would step up and be the solution to the many problems they see happening amongst the most vulnerable. And it was this vision, like I said, that inspired what we have since tried to cultivate amongst local churches here on Aurora. 
And we'll see uh, if this happens or not, but it's our goal that in the fall, depending on the conditions of the pandemic here in Seattle and, and in different parts of the world, to bring a group of Rwandese uh, from World Relief here to Seattle in the first what we're calling reverse strategic visit or reverse mission trip, if you will, where we can continue to receive training from our Rwandese brothers and sisters about how to do unity and collaboration among the local church well. And so as we supported the development of local leaders in Rwanda to be agents of transformation in their context, over the last 10 years we've been doing this, they have then supported us developing vision and leadership for among us to do the same in our neighborhoods, expanding the impact of our gospel witness in word and in deed far beyond what we could have done on our own. And this brings us to our final point for today, paying the price together towards an authentic gospel witness. Last week, Richard shared passionately that at Bethany, we endeavor amidst the many competing voices to be a church that simply does one thing well. And that is to be an expression of a church that follows Jesus, period. That's it. At times offending some, at other times being praised by many or only by a few. But of course, the challenge that we face as part of the larger body of Christ is that churches perpetuating the very same systems of racism that we would seek to combat also think they are following Jesus. So where does that leave us? Like the apostles exemplify when presented with the lack of food going to support Hellenistic widows, we need to be a church that has the humility to listen, to learn about our blind spots. When places of injustice or unequal treatment or shortcomings are exposed, we want to be a church that doesn't rush to short-sighted solutions but builds bridges that empower marginalized voices to rise to places of leadership, informing our next steps in reconciliation. We want to be a church that embodies the gospel in word and in deed, rather than offering a handout. Takes on an integrated mission approach, addressing the full needs, physical, spiritual, relational, of all of those in our midst. Friends, I believe this is our calling as the church both from its conception and acts throughout all of history, and it remains true for us today. I know somebody said amen. But here's the difficult truth. It's going to cost us something. Individually and collectively, we, like the 12 apostles and these seven disciples appointed for the leadership and expansion of the church in this text, we have to pay the price for an authentic gospel witness to shine through us. And I told you about my experience with Mario on the basketball court as a young kid. Uh, Interestingly, since that time, the vast Latino culture in all of its beauty has been one of the most transformational things in my life. I uh, thought I was going on a mission trip later in high school um, as an excuse to, you know, sip on margaritas in an underage environment. And instead I got salvation. I thought that Uh, I was going to go and have a crazy year living abroad after I graduated from high school. And I did that, but I also experienced uh, the adaptation of Latin American culture in such a way that now I'm a fluent Spanish speaker and it feels almost as much a part of me as some of the whiteness that you see looking at me now. 
I've spent much of my adult life working with vulnerable uh, populations, especially immigrants, refugees, and those from Latin America. And I don't share this with you to elevate myself as some incredible anti-racist person. Rather, I share this to demonstrate the transformation that I believe Christ desires to have in all of our lives if we're willing to let him. To listen, open ourselves up, and engage in relationship with those that are different from us. So I don't know what Christ desires to transform in you, whether it's your pride, laying down uh, your arrogance for the humility to name your blind spots, or maybe trading a naive sense of wokeness or believing that somehow you couldn't possibly be racist to releasing certain privileges that would allow the marginalized among us to truly experience the full breadth of God's will. Or maybe it's stepping outside the comfort of relating with those that challenge your political views, your understanding of God, or the use of your bank account. The apostles paid a price, releasing their power and privilege for others to take the lead within the body. And Stephen, one of the seven appointed, paid a price as well as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, sharing the gospel in word and deed, and then being stoned to death for it, having done the very thing that got him appointed to leadership in the first place. I paid a price. I, ironically, because of my experience in Latin America that sparked a vision in me for being the presence of Christ in the world, went on to lay down playing basketball in high school, something that had become a source of my pride and my identity so that I could spend more time investing in my church, being discipled, and going to places like Latin America in mission. We all have to pay a price. I don't know what it is for you, but I trust that as we pause in these moments of worship uh, ahead, God might convict you of just one area that maybe you can begin to lay down. And so as the worship team comes back up, I'm gonna invite us into a time of response. And this is what I'd like you to do. Consider the two following questions. One, what is one way you'd characterize the kingdom of God that the church is called to embody? Is it equity, justice, shalom, compassion? Let us inspire one another in our vision for what the church here at Bethany is called to be. And second, what will the kingdom, what will kingdom discipleship cost you? And our online hosts now are going to populate the chat with a prayer where there's two blanks. And in those blanks, you can fill in your response to those two questions, personalizing it for you. Let's worship and respond together now. Join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the incredible gift that it is to be a part of your work in the world. And we know that because we are indeed part of the world, that we all carry the burden of brokenness with us. And so, Lord, it's our desire to come before you as with open hearts. God, we want to hear your voice speak to us so that we can see how we've closed ourselves off to what it is that you would desire to do if we would just open ourselves up to the full breadth of your creation, to the full breadth of your calling. So God, tear our hearts open, we pray that we might engage with one another. And as we do that, as we engage conflict compassionately, that we might take the shape of your kingdom in this world.
So it's towards that end that we pray in your name. Amen. Let's worship together.